Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. When you pick up your phone, and maybe you're listening to us on one right now, how often do you think about who might have access to the data it holds? Cyber threats are out there, and simply ignoring them doesn't make them go away. Whether it's Russia attempting to influence U.S. elections or law enforcement trying to unlock phones, new technologies that make our lives easier can also be used against us. Susan Landau is here to explain these threats and help us protect ourselves against them. She is a cybersecurity expert, formerly a senior staff privacy analyst at Google and a distinguished engineer at Sun Microsystems, and currently a cybersecurity professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and the School of Engineering, Department of Computer Sciences at Tufts University, and visiting professor at University College London. Her latest book is Listening in Cybersecurity in an Insecure Age. Susan, thanks for joining me today. Thanks very much for having me. How concerned should people be about cybersecurity as they go about their daily routine? It really depends upon who you are and what kind of data you're dealing with. If you're the average consumer uh, in a job that's probably not particularly interesting to anybody, um, that is a Russian hacker, uh, a North Korean hacker, uh, a criminal in the U.S. that is, you know, let's say a school teacher, then there's probably not a great deal of worry. On the other hand, if you're doing anything uh, that has information that people might be interested in, that could be a civil society organization, it could be a company about to launch a new product, then there's lots of reason to be concerned. And, yeah, I mean, obviously there there's these threats, which we'll go into from Russia, North Korea, um, outside nation states like that. But, you know, and you talk about in the book, in 2014, there was this massive uh, hack at Sony. Um, and so probably were... Were the, was that hack done through maybe people who might not have suspected that they would be the target of something like that? Absolutely. Um, so there were a lot of different things going on at Sony that enabled the hack. One of them is that Sony probably didn't think carefully enough about the fact that it was in the digital business. Sony Pictures Entertainment thought of itself as being in the film business, which it is, but films are now bits. And just like the financial industry knows that it has to protect the bits because the bits are money, so should the film industry. So Sony Pictures Entertainment made it too easy to access the films from the normal networks. That was problem one. Problem two is if your product is bits and you need to protect them, then you should have much better security than simply a password. Password works for an account that you don't really care about, not a corporate account. So Sony wasn't using what we call two-factor authentication, which everybody ought to use for anything from a bank account to an email account to any corporate account. And that's where, those were where the problems lay. And this two-factor identification is where you get you set it up so that when you enter your password, you get some sort of code sent to your phone or, or something like that that the, you then have to input um, to access whatever account it is, correct? 
Right. When when we talk about two-factor authentication, what we talk about is something you know and something you have or something you are. But typically, it's something you know and something you have. So the know part is the knowing your password. The have part is you might have um, an application on your phone. You might have data that comes to your phone. Application on your phone is actually a much more secure way than information that comes to your phone. Mm-hmm. But 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 the fact is, you have your phone, and that makes it an important security device. The reason it does so is if somebody steals your password, you have no easy way of knowing that your password's been taken until somebody actually accesses your account. Whereas if your phone is missing, most people in modern society know it within, I don't know, 10 minutes, <laughs> five minutes, two hours. Certainly they know it within a day. <laughs> right. And, you know, speaking quickly about passwords, um, I think that's something that we're all using every day. And some people are using the same password for everything, which obviously you shouldn't be doing. And some people are, are creating these very complex, uh, you know, alphanumeric passwords that they'll have no hope of remembering. Is there any advice for what makes a strong password? What's the what's the current best practice for that? The current best practice is take four or five random words, not the one in the XKCD cartoon, horse, battery, staple, <laughs> and I forget the fourth one right, right. that everybody uses, but take four <laughs> or five random words, string them together. Um, because the words, there are many more choices for words than for letters or for numbers. I I do a process in which the accounts I don't really care about, I have a fairly weak password that is different between them, but different in a very predictable way to me. But these are accounts that if anything happened to them, I wouldn't matter. They insist on a password, <laughs> but I think it's kind of dumb, and so I don't pay much attention. Mm-hmm. My email accounts, my one for Tufts, my personal one, have much more much stronger passwords, and they also have two-factor authentication. Um, my uh, my passwords for other kinds of accounts also have uh, much stronger passwords, and they're all very different, unlike the accounts that I don't care about. The point is that you have to use technology that you're going to use carefully and well. So if if somebody gives you a very complicated account uh, password, and then you have to have it um, written down on your la- on your laptop in order to remember it that doesn't do you any good. Right. So what we need are usable systems. And um I know you said uh that that most people don't have to where unless you're in uh, a position whether it's for work or something else where you might be a target. But are there are there daily threats that people should be worried about? I mean, we have we had the um, Experian hack recently. Um, what can people do to protect themselves against something like that where maybe th- it's it's sort of out of their hands uh, in a way as far as the protections in place on a server that they don't own? So what, what can you do uh, to protect yourself against the data that you may have put out there but no longer necessarily uh, have control over? Right. So let me answer the first part of your question and then get to the second. The first part of your question is, how do you protect yourself and um, and think about threats? And the answer is, you want to think about threats the way people living uh, in their homes do. Um, they want to have locks that are at least as good as everybody else on the street. But if they have 
a Monet up on the walls, then they don't want plate glass windows <laughs> and easy ways to get into the house that don't involve breaking through the door. Um, so you put on the protection that's commensurate with the activity. Um, there are other things you do, like you always do updates whenever um, your browser or your mailer or your app says, we have an update, you update automatically, immediately. That's important. Uh, you use, as I said, two-factor authentication. And then you work not to be stupid. Don't open attachments. <laughs> don't open um, – don't click on links from people you don't know. And when it says Amazon, make sure it says Amazon and not AM. Uh, a Z zero N rather than um, the O. Um, it's being careful, being thoughtful. It's pretty hard when a place that you have no control over, like Experian, and this gets to the second part of your question, uh, a place you have no control over, like Experian, um, is attacked. I, long time ago, to my husband's chagrin, said, we're going to put locks on the, the three data brokers. And so if we want to open a new account, if we want to get a new phone, we actually have to get a release from them in order to open those accounts. It's annoying. I remember one time we were <laughs> buying a phone and my husband had to drive 20 minutes home, copy down the number, come back <laughs> to the shop. And he was pretty irritated with me. <laughs> On the other hand, when the Experian hack happened, and that meant that we were fairly secure, even though data presumably about us was taken from Experian, people couldn't open accounts in our names <laughs> because the other two brokers said, Nope. Uh, that was useful. So one has to think about what are the risks one might face and how much inconvenience are you willing to have? For my own part, I think that uh, we should see a pretty strict response to Experian, but I have it's early days yet, and we don't know how law and, and legal cases are going to work out. And speaking of law, uh, there have been a few uh, sort of high... Uh, profile cases. You start off the book talking about um, the the um, attack on the health uh, workers, and the FBI wanted to unlock the suspect's phone. And there was a big back and forth about this, and 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 people were concerned about um, putting in sort of back doors onto phones, and and what that might mean for people. Uh, first of all. The, the FBI says in order to do their job, they need this access, that they absolutely needed to protect Americans. Um, how much of this is, uh, you know, sort of scaring up support and how much of that is 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 real? How, mu how much do these um, does access to these types of phones help in cases like that? Well, in the case of the San Bernardino killers, they were dead. We knew they hadn't communicated with anyone during the 18-minute gap on the phone because that would have shown up in an ISP. It would have shown up in the cell towers. Um, I think this was a case that um, was a terrorism case that garnered a lot of attention, and it was an issue that the FBI had been pushing for a while. There's no question that phones carry lots of data that are useful for investigation. And they carry data that used to be on pieces of paper in phone books. Now there are contact lists on the phone instead of uh, on a piece of paper in a suspect's pocket. That said, we also have lots of information in lots of other places, whether it's the communications metadata that cell towers record. There's a, an incident I mentioned in the book where law enforcement had a uh, a warrant to have, to follow somebody 
And uh, while they were following that person, um, and they were following them through automated license plate readers that were pinging back information and cell towers, they discovered that the person was traveling with another person. How did they find that out? Well, two cell phone numbers kept appearing at each tower uh, that is the one they were following and another one. That meant there was another bad guy with the bad guy they were following. That's the kind of data that didn't used to be available. And there's masses of it now in lots of ways. So while law enforcement certainly benefits from the information on phones and in communications, it's the case that law enforcement has perhaps not tried hard enough in other ways to do investigations because the information was available unencrypted, open, and easy to get. If you contrast that with national security, Back in the late 1990s, and this is something I talk about again in the book, back in the late 1990s, the NSA was facing a crisis of going deaf because there was too much information. It was coming in all sorts of different ways, um, that is, fax and phone and email and different kinds of applications. And in, increasingly, communications were getting encrypted. Um, encryption was something that... Uh, technologically advanced nations had used for a long time, but by the late 1990s, everybody was using it. And so NSA felt it was going deaf. Well, as we know from Snowden and from testimony from the NSA itself, that's no longer the case. NSA developed sophisticated tools to combat the problems it was facing. The NSA and the FBI face different issues. NSA is gathering intelligence. The FBI is, is trying to convict. Uh, cases, uh, convict uh, suspects. And so it's a really different issue. But I don't think, and it's pretty clear from the kinds of responses we get from law enforcement, that they have kept up technologically in a way that they ought. And while, yes, it would be easier if those protections weren't on phones and weren't on communications, we would be much less secure if that were so. I think it's kind of striking that you don't hear national security strongly speaking up in favor of the law enforcement position. And you talk about these license plate readers and being able to sort of track people uh, through their cell phones based on, you know, the cell phone towers. Uh, what what sort of data is being gathered, you know, that, that the average person might not realize is out there about them, but that is 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 uh, is nonetheless being captured by somebody? So I'll give you a personal uh, experience. Um, my husband and I were traveling in London, and uh, we got uh, Oyster cards to use on the subway, and we paid for them with cash rather than a credit card because I just didn't like the idea of, of being tracked. I think now, in fact, you're supposed to pay via an app on your phone, which, of course, tracks you. <laughs> um, and I thought about it a little, and I realized that the last two nights we were in London, we went to a theater, the, the Royal Shakespeare Theater, which is in an odd part of town. So we went there at 7 in the evening. We left at 10 after the play was over. Um, it's not hard to notice that you have two passengers going to that part of town, coming back from that part of town at the time the play is. That's an unusual pattern to have it two nights in a row. We went back to a part of London where there are a lot of hotels. Not easy to figure out who we are, except that the next morning, uh, that is the, the third day, we flew back to the United States. And so you had those same cards, the same Oyster cards then 
going from the neighborhood where the cards were seen the previous night going to Heathrow. Now you have a lot of information because you only have to check who was in the hotels, who left that that morning, and you can pretty quickly isolate to a small group now. There was no reason to track the two of us. Uh, we weren't spies. We weren't carrying any interesting information. We weren't smuggling and so on. But here we were simply using Oyster cards to use the, the underground. And on that basis, you could very quickly figure out where we were, who we were, and what we were doing. We leave these kinds of data everywhere. There's a study out of Stanford that looked at the communications patterns of uh, 500 people who had volunteered the data. From those patterns, um, that is, who the people were calling, the researchers were able to determine that one person was checking out information about a faulty heart monitor or uh, pacemaker. One person was investigating the possibility of growing marijuana at home. Another person looked like it was likely that she had actually gone for an abortion. This was simply on the pattern of calls to Planned Parenthood, uh, her sister, the doctor, and so on. Um, learning that kind of information, especially when the phones themselves can be tracked, so you can see that somebody is going to church in the evening on an evening when there is no church meeting, but Alcoholics Anonymous is happening, uh, you know an awful lot about people. So the phones themselves are little radio antenna that almost everybody carries with them, um, license plate readers, transit cards, the transit devices on the um, on the on uh, on the roadways, the the easy pass, all of these give information about where we're going, who's coming with us, and that in itself is huge. And many uh, many people who are are for maybe uh, law enforcement or, or or other entities having more access say, you know, if you don't have anything to hide, then who cares if people are gathering this data on you? Uh, you're not doing anything wrong, so it doesn't matter. Um, is that a is that a valid argument, or or should everybody be concerned that this this information is out there about them without even necessarily knowing the extent of it? You know, we do things a thousand times a day that we don't necessarily want other people to know. The the question that Daniel Solov asks uh, is, if you have nothing to hide, do you get undressed with the lights on in your living room and the shades open? <laughs> uh, if you have nothing to hide, do you tell your mother every conversation you had with your husband or your father-in-law every conversation you had with <laughs> his son? No. Uh, we keep information to ourselves. We we behave differently in different social situations. If we do it in an extreme way, we say that person's dishonest, but we all do it in mild ways all the time. Um, that's one aspect of it. If you go back historically to the church committee hearings, which looked at when the U.S. government was inappropriately investigating all sorts of political dissent, um, and it was the Army doing so, it was the NSA doing so, it was the FBI doing so. One of the most important findings out of the Church Committee was that when such, a, when such surveillance happens, it chases the people in the middle of the political spectrum out. Uh, people at the extremes will still participate, but people in the middle feel, uh, feel threatened and they go out, and that's very harmful for democracy. Um, so it's harmful on a personal level. It's harmful on a democratic level. 
and the right to privacy, the right to keep certain information secret. It's nobody's business what the health is of my husband, except for his doctor, and if he feels he needs to tell it to people at work. But it's his information. It's not someone else's information about who he was calling. It's not um, anyone's information about whether or not I'm going uh, to, let's say, Alcoholics Anonymous, unless I'm having problems. Um, it's not anybody's information. Well, you can you can see the pattern from that. <laughs> well, and some might also argue that uh, retailers and places who are also collecting all this data on you through their apps, through your cell phones, they're they're selling your data and making money off of it. Um, and so many would argue, where do you draw the line? If if it's if it's my data, then why shouldn't I have control over how it's sold or or used uh, to even market to me? So there are, in fact, people working on uh, on uh, technologies to enable users to control the use of their data and to be able to sell it and market it. Um, I certainly feel uh, that it is uh, my data and I want to control it the way I do so is I limit the apps I use and I limit their permissions. And sometimes it's frustrating to me. Sometimes I don't get the information I need. Um, I was a person resistant to carrying a cell phone. Um, I didn't want everybody to be able to reach me at any time. Uh, I And I didn't want to feel that I had to be able to respond. Uh, but when enough people carry phones, then phone booths disappear. <laughs> and while there's still one on the corner of the by the apartment building I grew up in in Manhattan, they're pretty far and few between. <laughs> so when we change the models of how we do business, when it's harder to call and make a plane reservation or more expensive to do so. But if you do it online, there's tracking. Um, we have changed the relationship between the the company and the consumer, and we, we do need to rebalance, and we haven't done that rebalancing yet. Now on to a, a, maybe a larger, uh, less individualized topic, um, the, the 2016 election. Um, this is obviously a very big um, a very big and very current example of the sort of cyber threats that may face nations. Um, and what have we learned so far um, as far as what happened with Russia in hacking in the 2016 election? What have we learned so far in the, in the you know, uh, year that it's been? And are we moving forward from that behind the scenes, um, or is it sort of a stalled situation? We're not moving forward with anywhere near the rapidity with which we need to. What we learned, um, the most important thing we learned, uh, I think we learned by January of this past year. So it's it's 10, 12, 11 months since we learned it. And that was when the Office of Director of National Intelligence said, yes, there was Russian hacking during the campaign. It went after the parties and it went after other organizations likely to influence U.S. Uh, public policy. That's very dangerous. So in, a in our democracy and in democracies in Europe and elsewhere, um, we're soft in lots of places. We gain information through the news media. Uh, we have civil society organizations running from professional ones like the American Association for the Advancement of Science 
to uh, community ones, to charitable ones, that are real underpinnings of our democracy. They they work to connect the people with the legislators and the legislators with the people. They work on special issues for people. They bring the community together. They're a rich part of democracies. They're a part of democracies that that the Soviet Union and Russia has always found threatening. So when the Soviets took over um, at the early part of the last century, that is in 1917, one of the things they eliminated was these civil society groups. They did the same thing in the Eastern Bloc countries at the end of the Second World War. So they eliminated political opposition by assassinations, but they also took they, – they systematically got rid of civil society groups. Um, those civil society groups and our civic infrastructure, there's several parts to our democracy. There's the legislative part, the executive part, the judiciary. Having trust in all those aspects of democracy are critical for the health of our democracy. And the kind of messaging that is going out from the Russians through social networks, making it appear that it is not uh, Russians, but Americans speaking that way. The kinds of uh, or demonstrations that the Russians organized by gaining followers who are Americans and then announcing demonstrations when there weren't actually issues. Um, this is extraordinarily dangerous. So let me give you an example in, that occurred in Germany. Um, a teenage girl ran away from home, then claimed she was raped by Muslims, uh, by Muslim immigrants. Um, she was Russian-German, and all of a sudden there was lots of noise about the the uh, immigrants and the criminal aspects of the immigrants and the danger they were to German society and so on. The whole story was fake. Hmm. She had not been raped by, by Muslim immigrants. She had run away from home, but she wasn't, hadn't been raped. But this created turmoil within society. We've seen the same efforts here. And um, they're quite dangerous to the long-term health of of democracies. I don't think we've begun as a society to address them and try to combat them. And how sophisticated are Russia's cyber attacks? You mentioned uh, that they use social media and create these accounts. I, I think I think people are becoming more aware of this idea of bots and and things like that. But how how sophisticated is Russia? Is are they doing things that that most people aren't aware of? Or are they doing things that we haven't even figured out yet? Um, or is it fairly is it fairly uh, obvious? Um, I think that people who are interested in the issues understand many pieces of it because this is an old playbook of the Russians um, to undermine civil societies in other places. What they've got now is a new set of tools enabled through social media, through the ability to reach many people very quickly. Um, it's a fairly hard thing to combat. For one thing, when somebody has been fooled by such media, it's embarrassing to them. They don't want to say, you know, I was reading all this anti-democratic party stuff and I believed it, but now I realize it came from a bot or now I realize it came from um, a, a Russian hacker. Gee, I'm embarrassed. Uh, people have trouble with that. It's easier to say, no, I believed it and I didn't really get influenced by that. It's hard to understand, in fact, uh, where we are influenced sometimes. We, we don't understand all the pieces of how we get to the the choices and decisions we make. That's one part. Um, 
another part is that uh, we haven't built the tools uh, both technically and policy-wise to combat these things. Uh, we had always anticipated cyber attacks were going to come in the form of attacking critical infrastructure and physical uh, uh, vulnerabilities rather than this psychological warfare that um, we haven't inoculated democracies against. Inoculating includes teaching people to be sophisticated in their reading, teaching them to to hear many sides of a story. What we've seen in recent years, and this is well beyond the Russian efforts, we've seen an increasing cloistering of people like with like, and that makes it harder for them to understand when they're they're being told things that are not true. And how do organizations like WikiLeaks uh, fit into all of this? <laughs> WikiLeaks. Um, WikiLeaks appears to be a tool of the Russian government at this point. Um, they were very happy to drip, drip, drip uh, Hillary Clinton's emails during the last part of the election, but they're not willing to uh, publish on uh, on corruption, including corruption in Russia. Um, uh, WikiLeaks is pretty dangerous. Um, I would have said that even before uh, the the Hillary Clinton emails. Um, when Edward Snowden did his leaks, um, he I, I, he leaked items that Americans hadn't known about and that caused them to push for changes uh, in this. I'm thinking here now of the bulk collection of metadata. Uh, the U.S. government also said it would no longer collect on the personal phones of close allies like Angela Merkel. He didn't leak on sources and methods. I'm not saying that everything Snowden did was correct, but I am saying that some of which he, some of the things he did, he affected the body politic in very positive ways, and it's not clear it would have happened without those leaks. By contrast, WikiLeaks doesn't try to protect um, uh, confidential information that should not get out. I'm thinking here of informants whose lives were endangered informants to the U.S. government in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, it seems to be a disruptive, nihilistic force. And I think it's a, a very negative factor for democracies around the world. Another... Secrets, sometimes governments have to have secrets. If you think, for example, about the negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians um, that, uh, that led to the Accords, um, those could not have happened in public. There are times when you have to have secret negotiations, and it's something that um, Assange does not seem to understand or does not seem to value. Another player in this is, and we've it's come up briefly uh, earlier in the conversation, but uh, is North Korea. What is um, what is North Korea's level of sophistication with cyber attacks um, currently? It's hard to know. Uh, the attacks against Sony were fairly elementary. Um, the attacks um, that it is purported to have done on the ransomware, the WannaCry ransomware, were again using a known vulnerability. One of the interesting aspects of the North Korean attacks is that they use North Koreans living in, outside North Korea, agents who've been placed outside the country, 
So it's a little bit harder to track them to North Korea and say, oh, this stuff is coming from North Korea. We better be very careful about it. Um, we don't have that ability because of, of their movement. Um, they've found it an inexpensive way to threaten its oppo their opponents and also in the case of WannaCry um, to make some money. Um, are cyber attacks hard to do? Well, clearly not, or we wouldn't be having this conversation. I wouldn't have the book. Uh, I would have written the book. Um, but um, North Korea is not at the level of sophistication of the U.S., Russia, the U.K., uh, Israel, and so on. But it's learning, and it's learning fast. And looking forward, um, how concerned should we be about uh, the new wave of technology, uh, let's say the autonomous vehicles that may be hitting the road anytime? Um, is there a, is, do you envision a future where, where cars can be hacked by, say, terrorists or, or uh, other criminals from thousands of miles away? Um, and is that something that's being thought about as these technologies are developed? It's certainly being thought about, but you need to think about which cars get hacked and for what purpose and so on. Um, so you can do lots of different things. What happens if you hack the car or the motorcade that the president is in is one set of issues. What happens if you hack a whole bunch of cars right around, for example, 47th Street in Manhattan and do a jewelry heist? You know, Stop the police from getting in while you do this heist. What happens if you hack the cars um, surrounding, uh, for example, on the Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay Bridge, um, just as a an earthquake happens, you can posit all sorts of different situations. Some of them you're going to protect in one way. Uh, we know that the president's technology undergoes a different uh, stress test than everything else. Some of them you have to protect in other ways. And then you have the whole IoT situation and the Internet of Things. The the billions and upon billions of small devices that will be connected to the internet. We're going to have to protect ourselves in different ways depending on the device. I would hope, given the demonstrations of the last few years, that the automakers are being more cautious as they move on. Um, it's pretty different when the device hacked is a several thousand pound automobile than when it's a, a light bulb. Um, and so one has different responsibilities for security. Uh, we're going to need liability here. Uh, we're going to need regulation here to, to protect ourselves. That said, any large complicated piece of software will have bugs in it, will have vulnerabilities in it. So we also need to develop a more resilient society, a society that when something breaks, there's a workaround. I was talking with a colleague yesterday who said, we have to build assuming that uh, the bad guys are in there already, and that's absolutely right. So you build the system to say the bad guys are in there already. What are the things we need to do even though the bad guys are in there already? It's a pretty complicated process. Yeah, and, and you bring up a good point with the Internet of Things. Uh, these, this is your fridge or, or anything else that might be connected to the Internet, your thermostat. Um, one of the, the popular devices now are these uh, sort of in-home listening devices where you can, you know, say a voice command and and turn on something or order new diapers or whatever that might be. Uh, 
Is that is that something you'd be comfortable with having in your house? I mean, they're always listening. Um, is that is that a threat? Ha, ha, ha! I'm talking to you with uh, a little device covering the camera on my on my desktop. <laughs> I have a little piece of paper over the camera on my phone. <laughs> um, no, no, I'm perfectly willing uh, to have an Internet of Thing device uh, that reports to me. Who is ringing my doorbell? Because that's information on the outside. Inside the house, absolutely not. Um, for all sorts of reasons. I mentioned earlier the church committee and the idea that if there is broad surveillance, the people in the middle uh, of the political spectrum start speaking. When I give talks, I'm often asked whether or not I can have it taped. Now, the advantage of having it taped is the talk is out there. Other people watch it. Maybe they uh, – read some of my papers. Maybe they buy the book I just wrote. Um, it's good publicity for me. But the flip side of it is that when you speak and the conversation or the talk is ephemeral, even if it's in front of a thousand people, it you're willing to be a little looser. When it's up there repeated and repeated and repeated, uh, available for everybody to see, all of us Every single one of us is a little more stilted, a little less comfortable, a lot less open. Uh, so, uh, no, I'm not willing to have such devices in my home. It will get more complicated because more and more of them are being built this way. But, no, I'm not willing to have them. All right. Well, the book is Listening in Cybersecurity in an Insecure Age. Susan, thank you for coming on today. That does it for this week's episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening. Find us at YaleBooks.com or on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And while you're there, if you like what we're doing, please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a rating.